Well, hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to take a look at risk. Well, what do we mean by risk? We'll cover that. We'll take a look at how it fits into GRC, the overarching of governance, risk, and compliance. We'll talk about risk assessments, measuring risk, and a couple of standards that are out there for doing so. And we'll also cover a couple approaches, a lot to squeeze in. So let's get going. And as always, please follow us on LinkedIn and, and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. Okay. When we talk about risk, what is risk? I mean, think about it. How would you explain that to your boss or to a friend? And there's a couple of formal definitions. I mean, uh, one of them that comes out of the International Organization for Standardization, or ISO 27005, defines IT risk as, quote, the potential that a given threat will exploit vulnerabilities of an asset or group of assets and thereby cause harm to the organization. It is measured in terms of a combination of the probability of occurrence of an event and its consequence. Now remember that. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. How bad can it be and how likely is it to occur? NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, Special Publication 800-30 states, quote, risk is a measure of the extent to which an entity is threatened by a potential circumstance or event and is typically a function of, one, the adverse impacts that would arise if the circumstance or event occurs, and two, the likelihood of occurrence. Again, pretty much saying the same thing, just with a different set of words. Essentially, now here's my definition, risk is measurable uncertainty. Think about it. If you can't measure it, how do you manage risk? If you go back to 2018 and say, what's going to be the cost of the next global pandemic? There's really no data. There's no way you can measure that. It's, um, it's not measurable. Now, in retrospect, it'll be measurable, but for an anticipation, there's a way we could have done it. And uncertainty means that it can't be a sure thing. Either surely will happen 100% of the time or surely will happen 0% of the time because there's no risk involved. I can't go to an insurance company, for example, and say, hey, you know, I don't think the sun's going to rise tomorrow, so I'll give you $1,000. And if it does rise, I want you to pay me $1,200. They're like, yeah, no. Now, if you did it the other way around, they might take it as a sucker bet because most people are pretty certain that tomorrow the sun will rise. And therefore, it's not uncertain. So for risk to be categorized effectively or something to be risky, it has to have both those characteristics, measurability and uncertainty. And further, when we look at risk models, we're going to find out that for the most part, we're going to look at how bad can it be and how likely is it to occur? There you go. Nice top-level view. Now, why do we want to manage risk? There's reasons for that. Number one is typically we have limited resources. If anybody listening has an unlimited security budget, give me a call. I want to come work for you. All right, I'll be your consultant. Okay, I'll, I will definitely help you spend that money. And uh, we'll give you good value for it too. But for the most part, we have limited resources. There's just so much you can do with what you've got on hand. We have to prioritize our initiatives. We can't do everything at once. As I say, time is nature's way of keeping everything from happening all at once. And we don't have that luxury. And so therefore, what we have to do is we have to space things out a little bit. We have to ensure that as we look at the activities we're going to do, that 
we put them into a priority order. Typically, we go after the riskiest things first and eliminate that or reduce that or however we're going to address it, rather than save uh, the worst for last, so to speak. Another reason for managing risk is not everything is actionable. Not everything is feasible. Sometimes you just have to go ahead and do it. And as a result, what we want to be able to do is have some risk management approach so we can effectively inform management about what's, what's this potential for how this thing could work out or not work. And then, of course, we want to measure for compliance and for management. Compliance then becoming a big driver for a lot of things these days for any of us who have to go ahead and uh, keep in line with all those compliance requirements out there. And of course, we could do an entire episode on those things that we might be looking at. Now, risk is a component of an overall or an overarching governance, risk, and compliance strategy, GRC. Probably heard of GRC. I've been using it for a while. I did a little bit of research. I found out the term was first invented by the Open Compliance and Ethics Group in 2003. And they define GRC as, quote, the integrated collection of capabilities that enable an organization to reliably achieve objectives, address uncertainty, and act with integrity. Okay, sounds good. And in doing so, they published what they call the GRC capability model. And it's got four components. If you look at it visually, you'd see four little loops that kind of loop back in on each other. Uh, they have learn, align, perform, and review. Now under learn, what we're trying to do is we want to learn about the organizational context, the culture, and the key stakeholders to inform their objectives and strategy and actions. When we do alignment, we align our strategy with our objectives and our actions with our strategy by using effective decision-making that'll address values, opportunities, threats, and requirements. So far, so good. For perform, the third one, learn, align, perform. Perform actions that promote and reward things that are desirable. Prevent and remediate things that are undesirable. And detect when something happens as soon as possible. And finally, review the design and operating effectiveness of the strategy and actions, as well as the ongoing appropriateness of objectives to improve the organization. Now, from their perspective, GRC done wrong results in lack of effective oversight, organizational and functional silos, as we like to call in the military, it's silos of excellence. We don't talk to anybody about our information. Uh, a disjointed strategy, poor integration, lack of integrity, wasted resources, high costs. Um, any of these sound familiar to you? Yeah, it's, uh, if you have any of those symptoms, it's possible that your governance, risk, and compliance is not done effectively. Now, if GRC is done right, there's effective oversight. With that effective oversight, there's integrated risk and control activities. There's integration and quality information available. Share our technology and services. It's a <clears throat> common method that's in vocabulary. And we can weigh into detail on this, except I hit a $399 paywall. I love you guys, but not that much. So I wasn't going to go ahead and uh, keep going into that model. But if you like, you can go ahead and drill down a little bit more on the OCEG.org to learn more about their models of governance, risk, and compliance. Okay, well, we've talked about GRC. Let's talk about the governance and compliance. And then, of course, we're going to drill down into risk. 
When we talk about IT governance, you may hear about that. What is governance? If we take a look at COBIT from the IT Governance Institute, they define information technology governance as consisting of the leadership structures and processes that enable an organization to make decisions to ensure that its IT sustains and extends its strategies and objectives. Okay. So basically governance is we want to go ahead and put in leadership structure and process so we can manage the whole thing. IT governance, continuing the quote, is about making decisions in a repeatable, structured manner to support investment in and use of IT to achieve an organization's goals. The goals of IT governance are to ensure IT investments generate business value and to mitigate IT risks. Generate business value and mitigate IT risks. Big deal on that because if IT is not generating business value, then you're subject to getting chopped and getting your budget reduced because that's what we need to do. And IT security by extension has to create some sort of value or we also end up being more of an obligation than an opportunity. IT governance ensures that IT decisions will focus on evaluating and directing the use of IT to support the organization, monitoring the use of IT to achieve plans, using IT strategy and policies to accomplish its purpose, and aligning the IT strategy with the organization's goals. So essentially, governance at a high level, make sure that we're making IT decisions in a way that supports the organization. We're monitoring those plans to make sure we can achieve what we set out, establish policies and strategy to make sure we accomplish our purpose and align that strategy with the overall organization. That sounds like a really good template for how we can be successful and make sure that we're doing what we ought to do. Okay, so that's governance. How about compliance? I mentioned a little bit earlier, and again, I could do a whole episode and probably will on compliance at some point, but going ahead and looking at uh, a definition from BMC, they said, quote, IT compliance is a process of meeting a third party's requirements with the aim of enabling business operations in a particular market or aligning with laws or even with a particular customer. That was probably one of the nicest, concise definitions that I could find out there for compliance. You're meeting a third-party requirement to enable your business operation in a business market or to align with laws or a customer. Now, there's things that could drive us there. Industry regulations. There may be a requirement that goes out there that says we're doing, if we're doing credit cards, for example, PCI DSS, Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, sets up a set of requirements for us if we are going to want to continue to process credit cards and not have to pay through the nose for that privilege. It helps be compliant. Government policies. This is where organizations can potentially run afoul, particularly in view of the fact that a lot of governments are modifying and updating the rules. The General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, which kicked in on the 25th of May, 2018 in the EU, creating requirements for data and privacy. The California Consumer Privacy Act, effective the 1st of January, 2020, without any fines hitting until the 1st of July, 2020. But by the end of 2020, with COVID and everything else like that, nobody got any tickets for that one yet. All right. Um, security frameworks such as what we might be talking on a little bit later, saying, hey, we need to comply with a NIST or we want to comply 
with a uh, cybersecurity framework, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, or look at some of the other standards that are out there. The 800-171 for those who are looking perhaps at CMMC. Yep, another episode coming up on that. Man, I got all kinds of stuff for you over the next several weeks. This is going to be great. And then the last one is client or customer contractual terms. The idea with that is that you may have a customer or client that requires you to meet certain regulations, and we want to be compliant with that. A lot of times as a CISO, I get handed these things, usually in about the 11th hour, saying, hey, G-Mark, we need this stuff filled out. We need to understand this other uh, organization says you have to do this, do this. Do you have this? Do you have this, et cetera, et cetera. In some cases, it's a bit of a check mark, checklist, go down exercise. And we're in pretty good shape. I've been doing this for a while and most of the stuff that they're asking for. But every now and then I see something like, whoa, I didn't think about that. And I'm not doing it, but I think it would be a good idea. I don't have a specific example that comes to mind, but one thing you can do as you look at all these requirements that are presented, these compliance requirements from third parties, is perhaps use them as an opportunity to improve what you're working on simply because somebody else might have thought of something that you didn't. That's a great idea. Now, also, there's a lot of noise in there. It's like, yeah, really? Come on. Okay, fine, if that makes you happy. But for the most part, when I fill these things out, I'm honest with them. And I'll say, yeah, no, I don't do that. Uh, we, we, we don't do certain things because we consider the risk to have been already well managed. Now, when you have compliant requirements, as they say, things such as data privacy laws, if you're in a heavily regulated industry or market like healthcare or finance, you got to be on top of that. And also, if you've got clients that have high confidentiality standards, we want to make sure then that we're able to go ahead and meet those requirements. Okay, so that's GRC. We covered the G, we covered the C. And we've talked a little bit about risk, but now let's dive into risk a little bit more and talk about reasons, for example, for in conducting a risk assessment. Now, when we talk about a risk assessment, what we're looking at is trying to measure where are we in terms of this uncertainty and come up with a way to be able to articulate it in a way to management where they can make more effective decisions. One of the reasons for doing a risk assessment, as we said before, compliance. I got regulations or laws or standards or contracts, and we just have to grind it out. There are typically periodic requirements for doing risk assessments that are built into a lot of different frameworks, and we roll up our sleeves and we do them. Another reason for conducting a risk assessment could be internal requirements, either because it's something that you have established as part of your own security controls, or this is a requirement if you have one, of your parent organization. You may be thinking like, yeah, I don't need this, but if you're a part or a subsidiary or some component of something larger that requires you to do that, well, you're gonna be doing a risk assessment. A third reason for doing a risk assessment is to evaluate your controls. Are your existing controls sufficient for your current risk? And are they likely to be sufficient for the emerging risk where you think we're going? It also helps us to establish a baseline and report to management. So one of the documents you absolutely want to do if you ever take over as a new CISO is get a risk assessment done right as you walk in the door. 
Pen tests are also pretty good too, but you want to document where's my current state because once you sign on the dotted line and you say, okay, I'm on the clock, you own it. Now we had that same sort of approach in the Navy as a commanding officer when I would take a command and then I would report to the source senior officer. When you say, I relieve you, sir, or I relieve you, ma'am, you normally go up and then you report to your boss, admiral or whatever. And typically what you'll have then is you're going to make a statement that says, this is the state of the command when I assumed command. If you don't document it, the fact that it was a pre-existing condition, then it's your problem. It happened on your watch. Now, I'm not saying that this is a CYA maneuver. Yeah, it kind of is. All right, it is. Let's be honest with it. But it also allows you more than just the CYA part is because you've established a baseline when you get to a new position, you can then demonstrate the progress you've made as a CISO or as a security manager to advance where you were to where you are now. And therefore, if you come up on a six-month review or an annual review and it's like, well, what have you done for us lately? You can say, hey, let's take a look at where we were, look at where we now, look at all this improvement. Now, talking about changes and things like that, another good reason for risk assessment is a gap analysis. Typically, with a gap analysis, you identify your desired state. In this case, we're talking about our risk controls. We're then going to assess our current control state and then provide a set of action items to get us from where we are to where we want to go, and that's going to help reduce our risk. So that perspective, a gap analysis being done in a way to say, how do we reduce to a level that we have acceptable? We'll talk about the different types of risk in a little bit. Another reason for risk assessment is program management and cost control. We might be able to identify processes that pose excessive risk to the organization and then be able to go back to management and say, why are we doing this? This creates a disproportionate amount of risk, danger to our organization relative to the value that it's generating. It also can allow us to look at some of these programs that really produce, when you factor in risk, an inferior return on investment. As I said before, the hard part with security and ROI is that ROI typically expects you to make a profit or to generate something in, in the black. And when you go ahead and talk to management and they say, well, you know, last year we gave you three quarters of a million dollar for security and nothing happened. Uh, why should we give you more money this year? Because nothing happened. That's a good thing. So you see, you can't just do it on ROI. So as I've said before, and I'll repeat it again, I like to use the term ROSI, return on seatbelt investment or security investment. Some people are a little bit more generic on it, but I like the seatbelt. The idea is how much does it cost you to put your seatbelt on in the morning? Zip, zero, not it's just like a second of your time, maybe two if you fumble around a little bit. But what is the reduction in risk that you have in the event that later on you are in head-on collision or automobile accident. It's huge. It's incredible from the difference of with and without. And we mandate that, we create laws on that, we check for it. But for the most part, your best enforcer is your kids, right? If you get them used to always putting your seatbelt on, you can't even back the car to your driveway to go wash the car. Dad, you didn't put your seatbelt on. Just pulling out of the garage. Dad, you got to put Yes. Okay, fine. And that's great. You, you want to go ahead and have that established in there. And so what we want to look for is things that could create risk. And then looking at vendors and their products, we could do a risk assessment. Because one of the things that could be introduced is supply chain risk management. 
another episode on that one. As you, you see, this is sort of like a nexus for all these things we're going to be talking about. Supply chain risk management. If we've seen some issues recently, haven't we? With regard to different products or services that were compromised, and then that resulted in a compromise of other systems. And attackers are looking at the supply chain to say, how do we go ahead and do that? As well as how do we validate those organizations that are upstream in our supply chain that are doing things? As we recall from the 12 May 2021 executive order by President Biden, which includes ideas of a bill of materials or the SBOM, if you will, the software bill of materials, so you know exactly what's in it, where it came from, we're going to see a lot more on supply chain risk management in the future. Also, we can look at vendor risk. How about their financial viability? Is your, are you writing a $3 million check to a little small startup that uh, is struggling? And uh, maybe they just look at that $3 million and said, hey, guys, we're just going to the islands. Bye. And that's the last year of them. Or you invest in it and they spend all the money and they go to business that can't support your product. I love small businesses. I've started a number of them. And my heart and soul is with entrepreneurs who make stuff happen. But there is a risk involved as well and something you have to be aware of. It could be an acquisition target. Sometimes when organizations are acquired, or their products lines are discontinued. Some companies said, we're going to just absorb that into our own product. And so thank you for inventing that. We'll buy it and we're not going to sell it anymore. So again, a good reason maybe to do NDAs with these suppliers before you make a major purchase and say, hey, we won't tell anybody, but are you in the process of doing discussions with being acquired? Because this is what we're concerned about. The other thing also is sometimes when you get your um, a supplier acquired is the transfer, transfer of all your information. And I remember the predecessor to Clear, I don't remember what the organization was. Some, some of you probably know that right now. Clear is the place where you go to and they scan your biometrics and they, they escort you ahead of the line to the TSA pre-check line. Now, to a certain extent, TSA pre-check is sort of ahead of the line. So it's ahead of the line, head of the line. All right, pretty cool. Labor intensive, there's already somebody there and they walk you up there. But in any case, there was an organization a few years ago who tried to do the same thing. They went bankrupt. And the bankruptcy judge said, sell all their information and get some money for it. Yep, that can happen. So your information can be transferred. And then also the concern, of course, on the vendor security vulnerabilities. You want to go ahead and perhaps evaluate the risk of incorporating a third-party tool or third-party product that might have other risks. And these ought to factor into your purchasing decisions. All right. How do we measure risk? Rob Arnold, in his book on cybersecurity, has a nice little statement. I'd like to read it for you. It's a paragraph, but I think it's worth reading. There are four fundamental forces involved in risk management which also apply to cybersecurity. They are assets, impact, threats, and likelihood. You have internal knowledge of and a fair amount of control over assets, which are tangible and intangible things that have value. You also have some control over impact, which refers to the loss of or damage to an asset. However, threats that represent adversaries and their methods of attack are external to your control likelihood is the wild card in the bunch. Likelihood determines if and when a threat will materialize, succeed, and do damage. And while never fully under your control, likelihoods can be shaped and influenced to manage the risk. If we take a look at the NIST publication 
Special Publication 800-TAC-30, Risk Management Guide for Information Technology Systems, which is actually on Rev. 1. It defines these terms. Threat. Any circumstance or event with the potential to adversely impact organizational operations and assets, individuals, other organizations, or the nation through an information system via unauthorized access, destruction, disclosure, or modification of information and or denial of service. Uh, okay, fine. Not something you'd use in a normal conversation. It is a government document. I get it, but it's well-written and it's pretty comprehensive. Basically, a threat is something that could hurt you. Threats are external to your organization. They're internal to your organization. They are natural forces. They are human forces. They are cyber program and things such as that. Basically, a threat is anything that can hurt you. It doesn't have to have a brain. A hurricane can be a threat. A fire is a threat. But also, an advanced persistent threat group, an ATPT group of smart people working around the clock to break in, also represent that type of a danger. Threat. So think about that. Bad, bad actors. They don't have to be human. Number two, vulnerabilities. The definition of a vulnerability is, quote, a weakness in an information system, system security procedures, internal controls, or implementation that could be exploited by a threat source. Okay, there we go. So vulnerabilities are really the exposure of your asset to a threat. I'm doing this recording from Florida. It's hurricane season. So if we consider a hurricane a threat and the fact that I'm here in Florida, then potentially I'm vulnerable. If I don't like it, I go to Las Vegas for DEFCON and then I don't have to worry about the threat of a hurricane. <clears throat> However, COVID might be a threat in a different time. And so then we have to manage that risk separately. So vulnerability is your exposure to that threat. Likelihood, the likelihood of occurrence is a weighted risk factor based on an analysis of the probability that a given threat is capable of exploiting a given vulnerability. So what we're looking at then is that we can assign likelihoods at the beginning of, for example, hurricane season. They tell you, okay, this is a normal or a low or a high, and we expect to have so many named storms. And of those named storms, so many of them are going to turn to hurricanes. And of those, so many of them are going to hit Florida. And of those, so many are going to hit the west coast of Florida. And of those, so many are going to be such as... And so all this predictive risk management comes down really to trying to estimate the likelihood. Because that's something that is going to help me decide what it is I want to do. Do I want to go ahead and take a particular action if there's a high likelihood that a threat is going to materialize and exploit one of my vulnerabilities? That should probably be a good thing to say, yeah, let's not do that. Asset value or criticality is a measure of the degree to which an organization depends on the information or information system for the success of a mission or of a business function. So when we talk about an asset value here, the point is, is that if I have something that has a fairly low asset value, that is to say, it doesn't make a difference whether it's there or not. It's nice to have, but if I don't have it, meh, so what? Do I really care then about the threat having a likelihood of exploiting a vulnerability that is going to damage an asset that I could care less about? Do I really care if a thief goes ahead and steals the contents of my trash can? No, 
It's vulnerable, though. It's out of the curb. And the threat's out there. We know that there's a burglar in the neighborhood. And it's pretty likely because it's going to be a new moon and it's dark out there. But your asset value is not critical. So you don't care. So you can start to see that as we look at risk, these all are going to be multiplicative. We're going to multiply them. If any of them goes down, then the rest of it, the overall risk goes down. And the last concept that I want to point out is the concept of a compensating control. Now, the formal definition is a management operational and or technical control, for example, a safeguard or a countermeasure, it's employed by an organization in lieu of a recommended security control that provides equivalent or comparable protection for an information system. Another way of saying what is a compensating control is it means this kicks in when your primary control fails. When you're sitting there, head nodding, it's after lunch, you had a big meal or whatever, and somebody said, and we have a compensating control for that. Pinch yourself and wake up. A compensating control means something is not working. Something primary has failed to work or is probably not going to work, and this is the fallback for it. And so from a compensating control perspective, you want to be aware of that. So we've covered then as kind of the core definitions here. Threats, things that can hurt vulnerabilities, ways of things that can hurt get to you, likelihood, some probabilistic factor of is this going to occur or not, the asset value or the criticality, and to a certain amount, it's the asset impact. How much damage can they do to your asset? You may say, hey, I've got a beautiful piece of artwork in the lobby of my hotel or in the lobby of my office building. And there's a person we read in the paper running around with a wooden baseball bat smashing pieces of art. So the threat's there. The vulnerability is. It's in your lobby. Your asset, impact. It's a beautiful, crystalline, very fragile thing. Yeah, you got a problem. You got risk. But what if it's a titanium sculpture? Then they're not going to do any damage. You can just beat away on the way to make a good uh, YouTube video, maybe or TikTok. Watch this person beating up on a titanium sculpture with a piece of uh, wood, but it's not going to hurt you. In the same way, if you wanted to go ahead, you could reduce the vulnerability by taking that sculpture and putting it back upstairs in the building, put it in the higher level where you have to be screened to get in there and we can keep strangers with baseball bats out. And so there's lots of ways that you can deal with these things. Or if you find out that the uh, you read in the paper the next day, the person's been caught and put in jail for 10 years and the threat went away. Any of those things will act to reduce your risk. Now, risk assessment is really part of risk management. And this is not mincing terms here. It's kind of important for us to understand as security leaders that there's a bit of a hierarchy here. Risk management is a program and supporting process to manage information security risk to organizational operations. It can include your mission, functions, your image, your reputation. Also, your assets, individuals, and includes establishing the context for risk-related activities assessing the risk, responding to the risk once it's been determined, and then monitoring the risk over time. All right. Again, we're kind of back there into the NIST publications again. And what we see then is that risk management, four steps, establish your context, assess your risk, respond to risk, and monitor it. Risk assessment is only step two of four. Risk assessment is a program and supporting processes that manage information security risk to organizational operations to include, as I said, missions and function and image and reputation. And 
includes establishing the context for risk-related activities and you know, responding and you know, making sure we do the right thing. So risk management is we're looking at this overall function and risk assessment is typically going to be the measurement that we're going to be making inside there. Now, when we're doing risk assessments, we're trying to figure out how bad can it be and how likely can it um, is it to occur. What's going to come out of that is hopefully a recommendation to do something. And we have typically five different responses to risk. Yeah, maybe there's a six out there, but let's we'll just use a five. Number one, accept it. We just do it. Make an informed decision to accept the uncertainty associated with the situation. So if you go to the grocery store during COVID-19 and you choose not to wear a mask because there's not a requirement to it, you're accepting risk. That's your choice. All right. And if you're in a state or a city where the government has given you a freedom to make a risk-informed decision and you make a poor risk-informed decision, well, then you suffer the consequences. But you are free to accept that risk if you wish. Number two is mitigate. Take actions, usually in the forms of countermeasures, to reduce the impact of the uncertainty. For example, you could don an N95, or if you've got a really good one, an N99 mask before you make the trip to the store. Now you've mitigated the risk of being able to have some communicable disease transmitted to you. A third way of responding to risk is transferring risk. Risk transfer involves exchanging risk with a third party for a price. For example, if I'm an investor, I could buy a put or a call option, or for life or auto, I could purchase insurance. Now, in those cases, the counterparty accepts uncertainty in exchange for what's usually a fixed premium. What means then, if I, if I go ahead and I buy a call, it lets me buy a stock at a particular price, fixed price in advance. And then all of a sudden, that price goes up and up and up and up and up. It's like, whoa, this is pretty cool. I get to buy Tesla at five bucks. Well, the person who wrote that call has assumed the risk for a fixed price. And at some point in time, they're like, um, I need to do something about this because I'm going to lose a ton of money. Conversely, if the price doesn't go up at all, then the option number gets exercised, they pocket it. So transferring risk means somebody's exchanging certainty for uncertainty. Sharing risk is distributing risk among the original owner and other parties. For example, a parent can co-sign a car loan for a teenager. Now, both parties now bear the risk of the consequences of default. But presumably, both parties could enjoy the benefits of the purchase as well. So sharing risk means that you've got more than one party on the hook for the same thing. And then lastly, avoid risk. You could cease the behavior that's creating the uncertainty. For example, choosing not to attend Black Hat and DEF CON in person in 2021 because of the concern about COVID and the Delta variant and everything like that. That's a legitimate response to risk. So now that we have all those different responses to risk, are there any kind of standards or frameworks or ways that we can do uh, an approach with this? I'm going to introduce you to just two of them. Uh, NIST Special Publication 800-30 and then ISO 27005. The NIST Special Pub 830 is called the Guide for Conducting Risk Assessments. And Rev 1 was issued in September 2012, so it's been around a while, but not much changes. I mean, once you've established it, you've established it. Now, what is NIST? I had mentioned National Institute of Standards and Technology. They're responsible for developing information security standards and guidelines, including minimum requirements for federal information systems in compliance with FISMA, the Federal Information Security Management Act. 
And so as a result, what we'll find out is that as the government issues laws, NIST issues the standards to go ahead and show how to comply with those particular laws. Now, NIST outlines a four-step risk assessment process. And we might have heard this a few minutes ago. Number one, prepare for the assessment. Number two, conduct the assessment. Number three, communicate the results. And then number four, maintain that assessment. Now, what we find then is they have a nice diagram that you can find on there that's basically figure five on page 23 for those who want to download the document, the NIST SP 830. But what we basically see is step one, preparing for the assessment. And then in the conducting the assessment, there's five different components. Identify the threat sources and events. Identify the vulnerabilities and the predisposing conditions. Determine the likelihood of occurrence, the magnitude of impact, and that gives you the risk. So basically look at your threat times vulnerability times the likelihood of occurrence and the magnitude of the impact. How bad can it be? How likely is it to occur? We then communicate those results to stakeholders and then maintain that assessment so that if things change, we know what to do. If we take a look at the ISO 27005, the most recent version of that is from 2018. That document's called the Risk Management Process. Now, unlike NIST standards, which you can download at no cost, thanks to the American taxpayer, you pay for ISO. And if you go to the ISO.org and look for the standard, you'll find out that the 56-page document sells for 178 Swiss francs, which is just under 200 U.S. dollars today. There ain't cheap. And this complements a 23-page ISO 27001, which is essentially the requirements for their information security management systems. So the ISO IEC 27. 005 is a risk management process. And in that, it establishes four things. Establish the context, conduct the assessment, risk communication, risk monitoring, and review. If you look at these two diagrams side by side, which I'm doing right now, but I can't show you on the podcast, they're very similar. Basically, you get about the same place in different ways. ISO is used pretty much everywhere in the world except the United States. And people say, when are you Americans going to use ISO? It says, when we adopt the metric system, which is an ISO standard. Okay. So what we find then is that if we're looking at how to do that, there's, a, there's an approach that suggests that uh, we're going to choose that particular framework based upon probably where we are geographically. Also, I've had to deal with ISO assessments with American companies who are trying to sell to European firms. Because if you're in the EMEA or APAC regions, you'll find out that the ISO standards dominate out there. If we take a look at the type of risk assessments, using the definitions in NIST Special Pub 800-TAC-30, there's three different types, quantitative, qualitative, and semi-quantitative. Let's take a quick look at them. A quantitative assessment says we use a set of methods and principles are based on numbers where we're going to maintain those numbers and they make sense. It's objective. I can say, hey, in this particular case, I did a risk assessment and it appears that if this system fails, it's going to cost us $50,000 to repair it. And the likelihood of it failing looks to be about 80% 
based upon the mean time between failure, other, you know, whatever input that we have there. But quantitative assessments give us a numeric output. And it doesn't have to be a fixed number. It could be a confidence interval, which we'll, we can discuss later. The confidence interval would be something to say, hey, with a 90% confidence, I believe that the loss could be between X and Y. What you're expressing then is some level of belief as to where you think the risk may lay. It's objective, but it requires some reliable inputs and effort. A qualitative assessment uses a set of methods and principles or rules for assessing risk based on non-numeric categories. Things like very high, high, moderate, low, very low, good, very poor, whatever it happens to be. These qualitative assessments, you run the risk of being subjective. For example, I have the privilege to, to teach with the SANS Institute. And anybody who's ever taken a SANS course knows that their management team is very numbers-driven. You literally do a feedback form at the end of every day as a student. And they ask you to rank on a one-to-five scale, excellent, very good, good, fair, unsatisfactory. Well, different words mean different things to different people. When we're over in Europe, people go, oh, you did a good job. That's a three out of five. Good, get you fired. You did very good. I remember our, our, our former CEO saying, we have to be better than very good. Mrs. Sands talking. And I, and I agree with them. They deliver a very, very high quality material. They put a lot of pressure on their instructors to do so. But in that particular case, the qualitative assessment, basically somebody says, well, in my culture, nobody can be excellent. And so you get a four instead of a five, and, and then it dings you on your overall average. It's, again, subjective, but it's open to interpretation. And then a semi quantitative assessment allows us to use some numbers and then we bin them into groups. So for example, I create some meanings to some values. So I might say, here's a bell curve. And if I finish in the 96 to 100 range out of one, zero to hundred, that's very high. High might be 80 to 95, moderate 21 to 79, low five to 20 and very low zero to four. I calculate a numeric score and then I turn it into a word. Sometimes it might have been grades back in school. If, for example, a teacher were keeping track of grades as a percentage, you got an 80, a 90, a 92, an 87, a 20, and then those all had to map into some sort of a A, B, C, D, F type of a thing. That would be an example of a, a semi-quantitative assessment, something like that. So what we've done now is we pretty much laid the foundation for everything you need to do to be able to go ahead and know how to do a risk assessment. Now, what I'd like to do in the next broadcast, because, wow, we've used up their whole time already, is get into some more details on different risk models. I want to take a look at the FAIR, the Factor Analysis of Information Risk. FAIR is managed by the FAIR Institute in the Open Group. And I also want to take a look at the collective risk model that's been put together by James and Kelly Tarala, Fonclave Security. They published that model in May of 2021. And it's an excellent model for looking at how to do things. So that's going to be part two of our risk. Hey, I didn't say at the beginning that there was a risk that this might show might run over, but it did because there's just so much here and there's a lot of information that you really, really need to know and master. And so I'm hoping that this has been incredibly useful for you. Listen to part two. It's going to give you the uh, more practical elements of how do we actually get this done? How do we apply this in our environments? and communicate this risk effectively to the decision makers. Because one of the things that I tell people that if you're in cybersecurity, one of your most important job responsibilities is to ensure your management is making informed risk-based decisions. 
and this is going to be how you're going to do it. So thank you for listening and thank you for your attention. I hope you found this valuable. Again, this is G. Mark Hardy with the CISO Tradecraft Podcast. Please share with your fellow professionals. Let them know where you're getting all your good information from. We'd love to go ahead and have others listen in as well and hopefully gain in their career. Until next time, stay safe and look forward to catching up with you in a future episode.